Father, your love for us is deep. It is deep for us in Christ. And apart from Christ, we could not know it. And even as we describe it in poetry through song, we have to use an image like water and depth and being underneath it and its current being all around us. Father, we confess that as we sing these words, uh, we believe them, but we want to believe them more. We need to want to believe them more. We need to want to know this more. And so as we pray to you, sinners that we are, unfinished projects of redemption that we are, we ask for your help. Now as we open your word to see what is there, to hear what is there, and to know the love of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation chapter 2 will be in verses 1 through 7 this morning. Well, these days you can put a lot of energy into home security. Mounted cameras can stream video to your phone. Doorbells with cameras in them and laser and temperature sensors you can buy off Amazon without a subscription. These days there's a lot you can do and do it yourself, home security. I imagine three types of guys out there, and I say guys because it seems like this is the kind of thing that the guys get more into. Guys that don't think there's much threat of a break-in, guys that are cautious and get some type of home security thing and then may forget about it. And then the fortress guys, the guys who hobby in home security, it's like a video game. Can you catch anybody? And I imagine the worst version of that guy, I had a friend who had his indoors and outdoors rigged with cameras and a panel with all the video screens. He was in tech and did security for a living, so he had an excuse. But I imagine the worst version of that guy on his phone at the restaurant with his family, but watching the feed on his phone to make sure the home was safe, or returning home from work, uh, stepping over the kids on his way to the den to tinker with new gear and watch the feeds because, after all, he could keep the family safer seeing everything at once than maybe walking around the home and with them. And all of this for the sake of his family. And I'm not sure if this guy exists, but I did Google around and I did find a a small suburban home in Australia that made the news for 24 security cameras, 18 spotlights, and two steel gates. Well, home security is important. Even the simplest of men will lock the door at night. But it is important because of who is in the home. We occupy ourselves with the security of our homes because of who occupies our homes. And we can be, could be, completely focused with all of our energy on important things and yet be completely distracted from what is truly important. A somewhat absurd example, and yet we're all vulnerable to this kind of distraction. Well, today we continue our series through the first ser- for the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. And here we come to the first of what will be seven letters from the Lord Jesus himself through the Apostle John to seven different churches in the first century. Each letter with unique imagery for the unique need of that church. And each letter with imagery drawn from the Bible story 
and from the city in which those churches are found. And today we meet a church that focused with great energy on really important matters, but who distracted themselves from the person who was the point all along. So let's read together Revelation 2, 1 through 7. Hear God's word as I read. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, and you have a, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of Nicolaitans, which I hate as well. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Well, I count four fields in this short letter. A two field, a from field, a body, and a conclusion. And each of the seven letters, though different in content, will have that form. And so that's how our sermon will break down this morning, and that's how we'll break down our sermons through these letters. At a short glance, these letters and this letter may seem woefully short. If we could have a word from Jesus, something longer, more detailed, please. But after a long gaze, we find that these letters and this letter is wonderfully deep and just enough for us. And so I pray this morning we would find it wonderfully deep and enough for us this morning. With no further ado, let's get to hearing and keeping this letter. We'll begin by first exploring a prominent city. Exploring a prominent city. Verse 1. This is written to the church at Ephesus, in the city of Ephesus. Each letter of Jesus is addressed to a church in a specific city, and the commendations Jesus gives and the criticisms Jesus offers are shaped by the pressures of that context and also the features of that city. He writes as one who knows his readers and their particular world and pressures intimately. So let's take a trip to explore Ephesus just a bit. And as we understand and hear the heart and mind and knowledge of Jesus for this particular church, know that he knows this particular church just as well. That is our church. Well, if we Google mapped our way to the city of Ephesus today, it would take us to Turkey and then to a major city and then a few miles outside that city to some abandoned ruins. But as we stand here, if you will, in those ruins and wind the clock back, we would see the region fill 
as a bustling metropolis. And as we look around, the first thing that we would notice about where we're at on the ground in Ephesus is its river. In those days, the roads were bad, they were unsafe, and they were unreliable. You could use them for travel, they were not efficient for trade. And so the rivers were where it's at. And Ephesus was a hub for trade in the region. The river was fast moving, and so it would silt up. And if the city was not careful to manage the silt and clean the river, they would have to move the city. It would build up and ruin its port. And at one point, the city of Ephesus actually had to uproot and move. Because of the river, as we look around, we'd also see a bustling marketplace. We have a growing economy in Greenville. And as we know, as an economy grows, an economy grows. And Ephesus had grown and grown. It was a booming commercial center. All of the roads from every direction, even from far away, converged at Ephesus. Revelation 18 may well refer to what was found in the marketplace at Ephesus. Speaking of merchants of the earth and their cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves, it says, that is human souls, all likely found on the terrain of that urban context in the market. The world's goods passed through that city's streets. And that's why, if you look around, you'll notice a whole lot of people in this city and different kinds of people. It's estimated that there were around 250,000 people within the Ephesus area, a multi-ethnic and cosmopolitan city with settlers from Greece and Egypt and Rome and other territories who called this place home. And like many cities of ages past and today, of this size and stature, they're more than trade cities. They become destination cities. Think New York City, a city so prominent that Rome allowed it the rare exception of self-governance, a city home to annual games in the month of May that rivaled the Olympics of the Greeks. But for all of its international diversity, one thing united this city. And as we continue to look around in this city, we see the temple of Artemis. 425 feet long, 220 feet wide, and 60 feet high. With 127 ornate, exotic marble pillars. Gifts from kings around the world. 36 of them lined with gold, jewels, and carvings given as gifts for its construction. And inside the temple, a shrine to the goddess Artemis, an image said to have fallen from heaven, the center of life in Ephesus, worshipers chanting and yelling 
and even prostituting themselves in worship to this icon. Men and women depositing their money and valuables there because if the city were invaded and a war broke out, no one would touch the temple. Your things were safe there. The temple was the bank, the economic center, and Artemis, if you will, the banker. Life in Ephesus revolved around her. And as you look around the city, you won't find a church building, but you will find a church in Ephesus. And Christianity, shall we say, was a disruptive entry into the religious and economic marketplace of this city. Artemis united everyone in the city except Christians, and so she united the city against Christians. And we find the story in the book of Acts. There was a silversmith, Demetrius, who made silver shrines for Artemis. His whole livelihood was wrapped up in the worship of Artemis. And so at one point, reading the winds of the market, that Christians, a growing group, weren't buying silver shrines to Artemis, reading the winds calls together all of those in his trade and his field and related fields. And he says this to them, men, you know that from this business, we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul, the apostle has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And it says, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the place went ballistic. Christians were dragged through the streets before officials And they chanted this for hours. Can you see the context in which these Christians find themselves? A city that is geographically prominent, commercially prominent, politically prominent, and religiously prominent. Ephesus. The city with room for everything except for Jesus. A city with with every earthly thing on offer, but it had not heaven. And so these earthly Christians chose Christ instead, for to them, he was better. Diana had her grip on the city, excuse me, Artemis, also called Diana. But there is a stronger grip still. So let's continue by seeing what's in Jesus's hand. Two, seeing what's in Jesus's hand. Looking at the rest of verse one. Here's who the letter is from. The words of him who who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now that is a big hand. Remember that John is receiving this letter through an apocalyptic vision of Jesus Christ appearing to him in almost comic-like symbolic fashion, with bleach-white hair, eyes like a flame of fire, his voice like many waterfalls, a sword coming out of his mouth, and his face shining like the sun. And if that is intriguing to you and you missed last week, I would urge you to listen to the audio. In fact, whenever we miss, as you're able, listen to the sermon audio from those weeks. That's good for our church. 
It helps us to unite around the word and it helps you to pick up where we left off. And it makes sure you don't miss the blessing of what the Lord did with us and in us that week. So chase that one down, the first sermon in the series where we talked about what kind of strange but important literature this is, where Jesus appears in this fashion. Each one of the images of Jesus, features of Jesus in that vision, come from the Old Testament. And get this, each of these images, if you notice carefully, shows back up in these introductions of Jesus in his letters to the churches. There is a particular feature of Jesus that a particular church needs to hear. And this church needs to hear that Jesus holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the lamp stands. And what are they, the seven stars? Well, he told us the seven stars represent the angels of these seven churches. And he holds these angels in his hand. And so he holds his churches in his hand. And the language here is specific. It is not like I would grasp seven golf balls like this, if I could. It is as I would grasp a small uh, pack of mixed nuts, grasped, grasped, clasped in his hand, swallowed up in his hand are his churches. He is strong enough in his hand, is big enough, and in that hand, we're safe. And so, friends, we remember, as this church needed to remember, that this is not my church. Um, Danny didn't have his name up on the sign. I won't have my name up on the sign. Uh, it's not evil to do that. But this isn't my church. Uh, and it's not your church. So sometimes we say, uh, this is my church. Or I'm going to my church or the way my church does it. Or this is my church and I want it this way. Uh, we know what each other means, but we have to be careful in how we're thinking about this place and this people to always remember whose we are and whose the rest of us are. We belong to Jesus and we're in his hand. And you may have helped to start the church or build the church or fund a good part of it, whether anyone knows, but it is not ours. It is his. And we are not secure if this church is mine or yours anyways. Uh, We are only secure if we're his. But this image of stars in Jesus' right hand does not highlight security alone, although the church needs to hear that. It also highlights brightness and light. Stars are brilliant and they're bright because they emanate His glory. And there's something else that's bright in this introductory comment from Jesus. I didn't want to belabor the uh, text on the screen. But he also walks among the seven golden lampstands. Lampstands, Jesus said, are his churches. And he walks among them. And they are his lamps in the world. In the Old Testament temple, there was a a lampstand which lit, represented the light of of Israel to the world, a symbolic shadow, if you will, of the substance that would come in Jesus, the light of the world, truly, and his church on a lampstand giving light to the world. A needed reminder for church, a church in Ephesus and a needed reminder for us. Well, this world's cities are bright with light and you can even see them from space. 
I don't think you can see a church from space. But you know where you can see a church from? You can see it from heaven. And you can see it from eternity. And you can even see it on the ground in the love of the people of God for their neighbor in one another. So why does Jesus introduce himself this way to them specifically? Why do they need this feature about Jesus specifically? Let's turn to the body of Jesus's letter now. Hearing Jesus's words about a common trap. Hearing Jesus's words about a common trap will be in verses two through six. In verses two through six, we find a strong commendation from Jesus and we find a strong criticism from Jesus. Who would not want to hear this? Verse two, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. And Jesus means it. This is not a token affirmation. This church is nailing it on this front. They are energetic, toiling, working with energy, enduring with patience. They're the Navy SEALs of doctrinal defense, and they're smart. If someone seeks to sneak in and trick them, they don't miss it. And they put them out. And they care deeply. They cannot bear it with evil teaching. And they have done it for Jesus' name's sake. And so that's the charge of elders in any church, is to guard, to false, guard da, sound doctrine, to teach and correct false doctrine. Thank you for trusting us with that. Thank you for trusting me with that. So important, and you can tell on the lips of Jesus as he affirms this church here for nailing it on this front. And yet notice he is not speaking to the elders of the church. He is speaking to the new covenant community itself, every one of whom is responsible for guarding doctrine. They're doing great. And all of this, just as Apostle Paul instructed them as he parted from them in Acts 20, when he said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit's made you overseers. Care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. He says that false teaching springs up from within the church. So be alert. It's not just from without or on the TV. It's from within that false teaching can come. Well, in the Ephesian environment, they had been hammered from all around. Pressure from the outside, pressure from the inside. And Jesus commends them honestly, earnestly, and with great heart for their hard work. But it's not all that Jesus had to say. Verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And that stings. But they need to hear it precisely because Jesus loves 
this church. Apparently, it's possible to be against false teaching and for the truth and for Jesus to be against you. Yikes. Apparently, this church has been so occupied with guarding the truth that it fell out of love with the truth himself and out of love itself for one another and their community. And it's both. It refers to a love for Jesus, but also a love from Jesus for others and specifically the lost. Now, sometimes in an eagerness to see a church on mission, it is tempting to suck a, uh, an implication for love for neighbor out of a passage. But I guarantee you, I'm not sucking it out of the passage where it is not. So why do I say that? Well, why did Jesus give this specific church the imagery of lampstands twice? That he walks among lampstands, that he would remove their lampstand. Because as the lampstand is itself indicative of the church's mission as light to the world. So that is the concern on Jesus's heart here. They needed reminding that they are light. And they needed to hear that if they would not pursue their purpose, that Jesus didn't need them there even with correct doctrine. You get that? Jesus doesn't need our church even if we get our doctrine right. If we lose heart for him. And the lost. Now maybe you don't identify as a Christian. And one reason you've given is that Christians aren't all that they should be. And maybe you've used the language of hypocrite before. And that always hurts so that you know for a Christian to hear that. Well, at some level, Jesus agrees with you. Not that all Christians or churches are or that this one is. And it may be that you're being selective and self-serving in your evaluation of Christians in the church. You should be aware of that possibility. But it's true that some of his people have made a video game out of defending the faith and have forgotten that Christianity is first about a relationship of love with Jesus Christ that overflows in love for neighbor. So let me assure you and let Jesus assure you that he is no hypocrite, but he does love those who are very much who are still as unlovely as we are. This is a very imperfect church. I'm new here and haven't seen so much of it, but I'm sure I will. And you all will see some of it in me. We are not redeemed incomplete yet. And so if you are new to Christianity, you're exploring I plead with you to look to Christ and get to know us and pray for us as you entrust yourself to him and not to us. Well, maybe you've had a bad experience in a church that was all one of these things and not the other. All truth, but without love. Or maybe all love, but without truth. All love of Jesus and no doctrine. You'd be tempted to swing the other way. And if it's all love of Jesus... And no doctrine, excuse me, if it's all doctrine and no love of Jesus, you'd be tempted to swing the other way. Early in my time here, I was approached by a lovely person who asked me to rank three things. Uh, Love of the truth of the gospel, love for the people of the church, and a love for the lost. And I said, I can't do that. (laughs) 
Uh, those, things, those things go together. They come in, they go together. Now, I may be more or less faithful with one than in another, but in terms of their importance, oh, the truth is for the people to make them to love Christ. And as they're made to love Christ, we are only here so that we may love this broken and lost world. The truth is for the people and the people are for the world. It was a good question. Well, what are we to do when this happens? Because this does happen, doesn't it? Jesus even promised, listen to the way that he echoes, or excuse me, this letter is probably an echo of his own words in Matthew 24. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And so you see a connection between the love of the people and the testimony to the nations of the kingdom gospel. What do we do when the love grows cold? It can happen to a church broadly, but as with every disease in church culture, it starts with individuals within the church and it spreads. So if you imagine a dial, you can think of each of these letters to the churches representing a dial and the dial can move in one way or a direction. And we represent and individually we represent more or less of the, the problem or the, the affirmation that we read in these letters. So where is your dial on the doctrine and love spectrum? Are you getting both right? What are we to do? Three things. Write in your text. Remember, therefore, from where you fall in verse 5, repent and do the works that you did at first. So there's our little outline for this small section. First, remember from where you've fallen. Consider that one of Satan's crafty schemes is to distract us with defending the gospel to exhaustion, to battle hard in us and to wear us down so that we don't feel Christ anymore. Consider that. What a scheme to wear us down in defense that we can't love, to keep us busy on the defensive that we lose our offensive game. And a team that only plays defense won't likely win. So go on the offense. How? By remembering. There's the prescription right there. Remember your personal helplessness because of your sin. There's the doctrine of sin. It's personal. Remember the privilege of being brought near to God. Remember the price that this cost Christ, his very blood. And remember the presence of Christ in daily life and fellowship with him. For he walks among present His lamp stands. He is with us. One thing we'll do later in the service and sharing in the symbol of the Lord's Supper is to remember Christ's death until he returns. He has given us something to do on a cadence with which to remember what he did and so keep our love for him warm. Remember the Apostle Paul's prayer for this Ephesian church and for us. He said, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, a inward change we need 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in what? In love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Remember. Second, repent. Repent. Repentance is a word that means to turn. And in this case, we turn from trusting in doctrine without love for the one it describes. Yes, we may have correct doctrine and still need to repent. We turn from settling for a doctrinally sound Christian life that treats Jesus like an idea worth fighting for, but not one worth living for. We turn instead to a life that guards doctrine because the truth about Jesus is our deepest joy, because he, our Savior, is our deepest joy. And we turn from merely holding doctrines to, shall we say, admitting doctrines, confessing doctrines, confessing that you're a sinner, confessing there's no hope outside of Christ, confessing the reality of hell that we deserve. The things we believe are deeply personal and they put us in our place. So we turn from merely holding to doctrine to clinging to these things for dear life and pleading with the world to see what we see in these things and to hold on with us. Here's Tim Keller on repentance. Repentance creates a radical new dynamic for personal growth. The more you see your own flaws and sin, the more precious, electrifying, and amazing God's grace appears to you. But on the other hand, the more aware you are of God's grace and acceptance in Christ, the more you're able to drop your denials of self and self-defenses and admit the true dimensions of your sin. The sin under all other sins is a lack of joy in Christ. And so we remember what Christ has done and we repent to see doctrine as deeply personal. And third, we do the works you did at first. Remember Matthew 5:16. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. As this young church in its early days chose Christ above this world and its goods and its favor and its comforts, and its fine linens, and its idols. The world looked on and saw. And there's a, re- there's a reason why this little church grew to become a threat to the silversmiths. It's because these things of this world don't satisfy, but the Christ that this little Ephesian church found does. We don't protect the gospel from unbelievers We protect it for unbelievers. The point of guarding the gospel is spreading the gospel. The point of making sure the ship floats is so it can take the gospel to the world. Doctrine, fuel for the fire 
of our love. The church is not to guard the fuel and not spend the fuel. So church, don't settle for being right. Be beautiful and be beautiful by making your doctrine personal, by seeking Christ in it all. So let's imitate this church from Ephesus where Jesus commends her because she is to be imitated. Let us not skip what she was good at. Another church will get a criticism for that. But let us learn from Jesus' critique of this church. There are some everywhere who would subtract from God's word. So let's defend the gospel against those who would deny Christ in that fashion. There are everywhere those who would twist God's word. And so let's energetically defend the gospel against those who would distort Christ. And there are everywhere those who would add to God's word. And so let's energetically defend the gospel against those who would nullify Christ in that fashion. For that is exactly what Jesus says the Pharisees did in adding to the law their traditions. They nullified the word of God. A little bit of each happened in the garden and Adam and Eve were party there to Satan's schemes. But we hold the line and we hold the line of scripture straight by not adding to, twisting, or subtracting from the word. And we follow that line of scripture all the way to Jesus. And what if we don't? What if we don't follow that line to Jesus and see him and love him in all the things that we believe? Well, Jesus says this, five, verse five, if we don't repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. In other words, Jesus will shut down the church. Sometimes the church disappears for providentially mysterious reasons. Sometimes the church disappears because they left the truth of the gospel. Sometimes the church disappears because Jesus showed up and shut the thing down because they stopped loving him. Even if they had a perfect doctrinal statement published to the web and that they read weekly. The gospel, when it becomes merely true news and not good news to us, is lost on us. And so Jesus shows up and shuts churches down. Sometimes when you see those stats of so many churches closing their door in a year, uh, we can hang our heads and be discouraged, uh, be encouraged. Lots of doors are opening. This church has sent uh, people out to launch churches, and there's one starting in Salt Lake City. Danny is going for a work there. Uh, But sometimes churches close because Jesus showed up and took the lampstand away. So let us beware of one of Satan's sneaky angles as well. It's easy for a church busy defending against those who subtract from the gospel than to add to it, to protect it from subtraction. And it's easy for those who are busy uh, defending against those who would add to God's word to then subtract from it. And we'd all have anecdotes from our own lives when we were tempted one way or another or when we saw this happen. The church had so much right in Ephesus, but she had everything wrong because she lost Christ. So may it not happen here. Well, that's the body of Jesus's letter. Now let's move on to the conclusion. A promise. 
And we conclude here by trusting Jesus' promise of a feast in verse 7. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. There is a tree on the first page of the Bible, and there is a tree on the last page, this tree of life. But why is it exactly here in this short letter for this church? It's not decoration on the page. This church needs this particular promise. And I'll tell you, I'll labor throughout the series to understand how these images relate to the heart of each letter. And sometimes I'm doing my best. Here's my shot here. Well, in the first place, there is no access to the tree of life for those who deny the gospel. But neither is there access to the tree of life for those for whom Jesus is himself not the good part of the good news. And so he's holding out before them the promise of eternal life for those who truly are Christians and keep with Christ. John recorded of Jesus in the Gospels, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you sent. Eternal life is itself a feast with Christ and a feast on Christ for all eternity. Him, our joy. But consider this as well. We need, and this church needed, we need the promise that one day we won't wrestle between loving truth and loving Jesus. I'm a little convicted reading this letter, as you might be. Uh, I can get too excited about doctrine and not pray or not think on the Lord Jesus himself or not be moved with my own sin and his grace. And we need the promise that one day our dull hearts and at times deaf ears will be healed forever. And that's what the tree of life pictures, a tree of healing as we eat from it and we're made new. And we need the promise that one day there won't be any more wolves among God's people. We won't need to wonder if what we're hearing is true or not, or where the next false doctrine will emerge from. And we need the promise that one day our light won't flicker. It won't flicker. It'll burn like the sun in full flame. And one day there will be no distraction, no distraction And it will be impossible for us to take our eyes off of him. So maybe for you, your relationship with Jesus, for as long as you may have gone to church and for as much of the Bible that you may have known, maybe your relationship with Jesus has been mostly business. And maybe that's what you've thought that he wants. Merely a security guard. Consider that Jesus wants you to love him. And to value him above all else. Consider that for Jesus, this relationship with you is deeply personal. You are not a mere hired hand to watch his gate. And you are not a mere security system. You are his beloved children. So let's, as we are in his home, enjoy our father and the son who is Christ. Today, if you go to Ephesus, as we kind of did... Today, if you go to Ephesus, you won't find a church there. There's no gathering of Christians in that place. And why not? Well, I didn't chase down the history. Maybe they folded on the gospel. But maybe they never left the truth of the gospel. 
Maybe they just forgot Christ. Maybe they got distracted with the truth of Jesus and they missed him. And so Jesus showed up and took his lampstand away. May it never happen here. This town is full of churches that have been around hundreds maybe of years. Not too many hundreds. Old churches. Let's be an old church. We've got about 42 years. Let's add another 40 and then a few hundred. And it's our job here to guard the gospel in order that we might spread the gospel. Friends, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And remember the promise of this book. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled before the affirming words of Jesus and knowing that in some measure, those are for us too, that he is happy with us and he is for us and he is glad that we hate the things that he hates. And Father, we are taken aback by the sharp words of Jesus that he may be against us in some measure. He was against this church for the love that they had lost. And so, Father, I pray for us here in this place that you would keep our love warm and that you would keep it warm so that the nations and more close by so that our neighbors might see the light of Jesus in his lamps, on his lampstands in this place. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.